City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, acres and acres of tar and cement, and here we are, John. Uh, yeah. John McPherson, Transport Day. We've got Patrick from Melbourne. Patrick's here from, he's been here a long time. He came in for Monday Brecky, and he's still here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's. He's, uh, he's, um, he's moved all, in permanently, folks. All the other little helpers have disappeared, but Patrick, thanks for coming in and helping us. Oh, thanks for letting um, me sit in. Sit in. <laughs> and I'm Kevin Healy, and it is City Limits. It's the first Wednesday of the month, so it's transport. John McPherson's here, our monthly transport. Guru, and when, oh, I, and when I say monthly guru, you're not monthly guru just once a month, no, you're a month all the month. But I don't, it's all right, yeah, you know I, what I mean. I don't mind yeah, being a guru yeah, just once right, a month. Right, exactly, exactly. You know, I can't take you. offence at that. You said to, much worse things. <laughs> not, I'll just pour some tea while saying there's not much to talk about this week, is there, John? No, um, no, no. This month, given there was a train accident, there's. Uh, yeah. Things about the tunnel. Two There's tunnels, a, all have both lots having of troubles. complaints about yeah. crowded public transport. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's heaps of stuff, heaps yeah. of stuff. So we're yeah. going to have to yeah. uh, really let fly this morning. Um, and um, and firstly, though, we'll just talk about the, uh, Patrick, have a cup of tea. Thank you John, very much. have a cup of tea. Thank you, Kevin. Kevin, have a cup of tea, okay. Um, all set. There we are, all done. And. Um, the um, just a few other matters worth having a look at. Um, just last week, of course, the the re- fairly rare it happens the Director General of Security made a public speech, mm. in which, among other things, and, and other things that really haven't, I don't think, received all the publicity they should have, that that right wing groups in Australia mm. are posing a major threat, and mm. uh, and in mm. fact doing secret. Um, military training, etc. Oh, really? All very disturbing, but it hasn't really been picked up a hell of a lot. It was no, tucked I away in paragraphs in his story, and it got a bit of a. Yeah. He, he raised other. You know, I, didn't pick, other I didn't pick up the secret military training. That's yeah, a, we, all yeah, that, okay. and uh, it'd be nice to see uh, someone with a bit of, uh, mm. apart from three CR, with a bit of uh, mm. a bit of guts in this society, take it up and uh, and mm. take them on. Mm. But anyway, that's mm. just a by the by. I thought hardly a by the by, but it's worth mentioning. Mm. Um, also, a headline in the Financial Review this week that you'll find incredibly surprising, both of you, I think. Um, the headline was, Casino Self-Regulation, brackets, quotes, doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, <laughs> who would have thought? That, that leaves a stun, Kevin. Oh. Stunned. <laughs> oh. Mm. Have a sip of tea, Kevin. Um, yeah. yeah, so anyway, um, and of course it is, it's being left to self-regulation and there's currently inquiries into money laundering and all sorts mm. of things and some allegations made last year by The Age and I think That's right. the ABC. And, um, um, yeah, but yeah. you know, um, the affirmation that the best method for the regulation of junkets was the casino operator's internal controls, that's the Victorian policy. Well, that's just ridiculous. You've got to control them. <laughs> And well, we, we've heard lots about, yes, lots of people flying in and flying out that really should have, should have been in jail. Well, the Commissioner of the Crown Inquiry questioned whether leaving the vetting of high-rolling gamblers to casinos without the involvement of law agencies offered adequate protection against unsavoury players, and I rather think, <laughs> rather think she's, she's answered <laughs> her own question. 
Yeah, money spends. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, that's that. Um, well, I mean, let's, there's a headline in The Age um, the day before that. In fact, Crown's half a million dollar transfer to Trafficker, um, which Crown denies, of course, but it's uh, mm. another story that they're yeah, pushing. Apparently but, fairly, yeah, apparently yeah. clearly there somewhere but in the record. Interesting yeah. to see what comes out of this inquiry, of course. Um, we'll see what happens. Oh, well, not very yeah. much. Um, John, surprised to hear you say that. <laughs> We've been involved with inquiries for years and <laughs> on day one you can always tell them what they're going to find. Pretty much, yes. Yes, well, uh, isn't um, isn't what's-his-name the young um, young Jamie Packer trying to get out of Crown now? I think he's trying to... Well, it's, one of the inquiries is that he's selling part of it mm. to um, to the Ho family. That's but right, then yeah. The... the Pat Patriarch of that family is considered to be a person of ah. not not exactly good repute, <laughs> and uh, which and might so, make it slightly awkward. <laughs> yeah, so that that's what the inquiry's about. Right, yeah, right, but, but, it, but the other mob have now pulled out because of the coronavirus, um, because their Macau casinos are, are losing, and, and their other oh, casinos okay. are losing. So they're so there's there's all sorts of complications yeah, yeah. in the case yeah, now, but anyway, yeah, no, it's, yeah, no, but it no, I hope it doesn't finger sure poor we'll, Jamie. I'm but, sure we'll yeah. look after Jamie. Lovely bloke. <laughs> <laughs> he was lucky to inherit his father's looks, wasn't he? Um, <laughs> the um, the other one this week that I thought worth talking about was the fact that um, Morrison had no no influence whatever or no involvement whatever in the sports shorts as they're called. Right, right. All he, he did was in the days before the election sent 136 emails about it, yeah. uh, <laughs> which funny. he denied it had anything to do with the whole thing. So obviously he just congratulated on doing a good job. Time over and over again. 136 <laughs> times, yeah. <laughs> oh, anyway, that's that. Uh, this one will upset you, though, and this, this is really a, a real worry. Mm-hmm. after the great role he played in the last election. Mm. Billionaire Clive Palmer could face up to five years jail after being slapped with fraud charges dating back to the year he was elected to Parliament. Mm. This is sad news, isn't it? The dramatic turn of events was revealed before a parliamentary hearing late yesterday, whatever day that was, it was this week sometime, mm. um, by corporate watchdog, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, four charges have been laid against the billionaire, including dishonestly gaining an advantage and misusing his position as the company director. Again, who would have thought, John? Mm. They are the most serious charges laid against the former MP, who is also facing criminal charges from ASIC related to the to his company Palmer Coulomb Leisure. But a defiant Mr Palmer has brushed off the charges as politically motivated and says it's nothing to worry about. So, oh, so that's good, isn't okay. it? <laughs> yes, but still we'll wait and see. Well, well, certainly the conservative side of politics should be very, um, you know, pleased with Mr Palmer. I mean... Clearly, his eighty million dollars worth of advertising had quite a lot to do with the fact that they're in government. That's right, mm. and a bit of a few grants to marginal seats. Um, oh yes, in, that too. in country areas that does make a that's big right. influence. North, I mean, the North yeah, Sydney right. um, yeah. pool is a is yeah. a country country yeah. electorate. Well, we'll never and um, and the leader of the Nationals stood up in Parliament and tried to defend that. Apparently, mm. that's right. <laughs> he tries to defend it. Yeah. He needs to defend himself. Um, and also, a, um, another, you might have noticed this week, a, a McDonald's um, got fined, well, it wasn't actually fined, it was ordered to pay 40000 with no conviction, which I find amazing. But it, um, a bloke um, bit into his, uh, his hamburger, or no, he, uh, chips, I think it was, yeah, munching on chips. Yeah. This, is, this is the, the P&I Highway, Elstonwick um, uh, McDonald's, McDonald's. 
he felt a sharp pain and spat out a 25mm by 5mm jagged glass fragment Jesus. along with blood. When he alerted staff, um, he saw an empty heat lamp box near the fries warmer. He then lodged an official complaint before taking himself to Sandringham Hospital, etc. Um, but then a few days later, in fact four days later, he underwent surgery at Frankston Hospital to remove the glass because he suddenly found... Two days later, he was unable to eat. He had severe vomit, vomiting, etc., and they found God. more glass in his in his oh, belly. No. Um, anyway, the the company was taken to uh, to court for um, having mm. the glass, which probably wasn't meant to be in the chips, really. And um, they the their lawyer said one piece of glass was unfortunately left in the fries area, um, and he said. The 24-7 franchise, which served about 900,000 customers a year and employed 240 staff, <laughs> was a contributor to local charities, sporting organisations and health groups. Isn't that just wonderful? Oh, yeah, we've just had a, a sign-up here, Kevin. Yep. Oh, Ken Mo Mooney's just rung in to say that um, if you... Um, if you pull that to you again, he's going to smash the teapot. Oh, right, right. Yes, he... <laughs> He is a, a listener who, who is usually out having a walk when we pour the tea and then he has to rush somewhere to have a piss. <laughs> that's, so that's, that's what he's complaining about, the noise getting going in the old bladder area. Um, anyway, um, they were put on a, on a, a uh, good behaviour bond, but they had to pay forty grand and six forty nine in costs, but uh, I reckon they got off pretty lightly given the... Mm. Yeah, it's pretty... Pretty, given pretty it, uh, um, severe. I might come to it later, but this week on, on charges of a blockade of a, a board or subsidiary um, in which workers who went through the um, through the picket line were called scabs, mm. um, the, the union, the CFMEU again, of course, got fined half a million dollars just a couple of days ago and, uh, and one of the organisers was fined $13,000 for calling someone a scab. Um, right. So I reckon yeah, in that base, yeah. McDonald's got off pretty lightly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think about it, yeah. yeah also, this... Um, severely injuring customers. This yeah. Monday, this, this, police, um, this police raid, or not so much a raid, the police uh, outside the pub where they thought someone was holed up. It mm. wasn't. He got, I mean, the amazing thing is they had all these coppers. They all looked like soldiers. They even had a bloody tank there. I mean, the stuff they've got now, it's quite frightening. It's, it's yeah. pretty terrifying. And this is supposed to make us feel secure. For God's sake, if you saw that, you'd, you'd probably drop dead with a heart attack. Um, at the West, but, uh, the bit I like is the bloke got out a door they weren't actually guarding. I mean, there's all these cops everywhere, yeah. but they, they managed to leave a door for the blokes to get out. So they spent five hours yelling at them, and they weren't even in there. <laughs> I mean, it's just... Anyway, Where was this? This was at West Meadows, um, a pub there. A, a cleaner a cleaner came out. She had been held up by a couple of blokes, apparently, and she came, She got out um, and reported there were these mm. blokes in there with guns, and that's when the coppers turned up. But by the time that happened, the, the blokes had gone. But this West Meadows, um, the pub is called the West Meadows Tavern. And those, <laughs> those are the guys that they wouldn't um, bring in to deal with the Gagasulis. Incident? No, no. They were right. too. They weren't. They weren't appropriate for dealing with uh, some madman in a, in a, in a car driving out of control all over the city. But this was more their thing. <laughs> That's right. Playing siege. Well, yes. Now, um, Mike Kane, who's the head of Boral. Oh, yes. uh, you might recall about two or three years ago, he was the Financial Review's Business Person of the Year at the oh, end right. of the oh, year. That's, that's because that's... of the way that he'd taken on the CFMEU oh, okay. uh, over a secondary boycott, which was to do with um, 
which was to do with that building in the city. And uh, there was a building in the city and there was a secondary boycott mm-hmm. on Boral to stop him delivering stuff to it. Oh, okay. Um, and... Um, Would have been... Stuff he to took on building, the unions. Building the, supplies. That's right. The unions were deemed to be so terrible. And yeah. he was deemed to be one of the great... CEOs and these, and Mike Keane is an American, yeah. Oh, wow. But okay. anyway, right. um, uh, on February 10, Borrell announced its fifth profit downgrade in two years and Ooh. said Mr Kane will be departing earlier than expected. <laughs> um, and he's, he's leaving in August, but they have a great businessman, but... He, but he's still um, doing things. He's yeah, um, yeah. still throwing punches. Yeah, be- yeah, before yeah. he goes, because he loves workers, obviously. That's why he took them on, because he really respects right. workers, but right, not right. evil unions. Right. Uh, and evil union, evil workers are actually in evil unions. And um, he's actually going to slash another 100 jobs, which brings up to 500 the number of jobs he slashed in the last two years mm-hmm. from Boral to try to stop this fifth profit downgrade and becoming a sixth or whatever. Um, So this is the bloke who got respected Mm. as a great man who loves workers, and all of a sudden he's... uh, Right. He's in that he's, sort of thing. But nonetheless, a... he's going, the 500 workers are going to go. But, of course, I keep reminding people that uh, on Monday, at a, for blockading a Bordel subsidiary, um, the union got fined half a million dollars. I just mentioned that again. Because yeah. um, it's worth mentioning also that uh, the bloke at Deliveroo, who have a great reputation in the way they treat workers, mm. as we know, mm. they now say the government should bring in a law that... that makes it more certain for workers. And the bloke, Ed McManus, the chief executive of Deliveroo Australia, Mm, said, mm. as the on-demand economy continues to grow around the world, we are seeing governments such as in France plan to introduce modern legislation which is fit for this modern economy combining the flexibility of on-demand work which people want with the security they deserve. (laughs) And I thought that's very good of him, but if if that's the case, why don't they just do it? Yeah. Mm, I mean, why mm. do you need a law to give mm, workers mm. the security they deserve mm, and mm, all that. Mm, and the mm, of, yeah, mm. yeah no if it's obviously good for your workers, that, that, that would seem to mean it would be good for your company. Yes. So yes. surely you'd do it. But well, no, no, so. it's not actually quite that simple, is it, guys? No. You've one... got to seem to be being good to your workers while at the same time screwing as much um, yeah. labour out of them as you possibly can down to the last, the last cent. Yeah. And as of this week, former staff from the Heston Blumenthal-fronted oh, yeah. dinner by Heston are still fighting to be paid their final two years' salaries. Wow. I remind you, by the way, that uh, the CFME, you got fined half a million dollars as mm. people calling people mm. scabs. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. Um, just and, mention um, that. Uh, and some of these, um, some of these um, wage, wage um, issues where, where people haven't been paid properly are hundreds of millions. Yeah, this, yeah, yeah. Well, this story goes to that. This yeah. is Adele Ferguson right. wrote an article on Monday, yeah. and um, it's so about why do they let her there's write? two factors in the rip-offs. They're not getting paid the wages, but also they're not their super isn't going into their funds, and there's mm. millions being stolen there, mm. which includes the money that the employer is supposed to put in, but also the employer extracts money from the worker mm. uh, and puts it in mm. as well. Now that's that's presumably getting mixed up with the worker's mm. own money and own mm. profits, and uh, not landing in and, the workers. And, and what about some interest on the fact that the, that uh, you know all this has got to be back paid for, all for years. Industry Super Australia estimates that almost 2.8 million workers, or almost one in three, are being shortchanged almost six billion dollars a year in super. Wow! Which is equivalent to an average of 2,070 a year in underpayments. 
um, and southwest Sydney, Liverpool, Melbourne, the western suburbs of Melbourne, among others, mm. uh, and Point Cook's a, a key point where workers seem to be copying it. Um, and the most the 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 um, construction industry is one of the ones where a lot of the underpayments are occurring. True. But there's one awful story, and it's a bit of reading, but I'll, I'll do it because I think it's such an important one. The following case epitomises why the system needs changing. It involves an electrical contractor in Queensland with more than 30 employees. In 2018, the workers went to the Fair Work Commission to complain about unpaid super. They then reported their concerns to the ATO, that's the tax office, which came up with an agreement with the contractor to repay the workers in monthly instalments from May 18 until May 20. After a few months, the payment started drying up or dying up and the holiday loading and other penalties also weren't being paid. The company then went into liquidation, the old story. Another company was set up in the owner's wife's name and the same employees were hired to work on the same project. The workers in need of a job couldn't afford to turn it down. Calls were put into the ATO and a letter was written to ASIC in September 2019 saying, I am of the strong belief the company is evading having to pay wages, superannuation and setting up new companies to avoid having to do so. I would ask that ASIC look into this matter as soon as possible, please. I look forward to hearing back from ASIC around this matter. A month later, ASIC wrote back that it had decided not to investigate the phoenixing. ASIC believes that these types of disputes are best resolved through communication with the insolvency practitioner appointed to the company, not with formal intervention by ASIC investigators. The old company was put into liquidation and the new company continues to trade. The workers never received their super entitlements and they are now worried that the new company is set to rip them off afresh. It's pretty awful stuff, isn't it? Well, obviously the... um the so-called regulators aren't haven't got the, enough power. They haven't got enough or the work, desire, uh, or the desire, or enough or enough uh, operators to do the job. Anyone else want to top up? Oh yeah, uh, Patrick, you're right over the equipment. Yeah, right. <laughs> Sorry about this, Ken, but you're going to have to put up with there the dribble, are, dribble, Ken. dribble. That's it, Ken. <laughs> That's right. We you can't smash the teapot from where you are. <laughs> Thank Thanks, mate. Much. Right. Yeah, yeah that, so, no, that's. Um, you know, that's it is classic. You have regulation in sort of you have the name, but you don't have the um, mm. the the, uh, the 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 strength or the inclination to actually yeah. carry it out. Well, the yeah. federal government last year, when uh, Kelly Ada Wire was the minister, was mm. making half-hearted comments about you know solving this Felix mm. problem because it's a long one. And one, I yeah, mean, you get it also in compensation cases, injury cases where mm. workers are injured, sure. owed lots of money, the company folds up, reopens, and something else, and they never get their compensation mm. for their injuries. And uh, you know, it's a it's an ongoing problem. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. as I say, um, call someone a scab, half a million dollars. Yep. yep. Yeah. Well, that's. Fair enough. Yeah, it's a classic case of don't look yeah. here, look over there. Yeah. <laughs> whatever, whatever. Yes. The other one, of course, this week is that um, on the other side, those who don't believe in socialism keep calling out for more and more government grants. And uh, <laughs> yes. in the coronavirus situation, the government's now saying it may put money aside to to help businesses that are suffering. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not sure why that's the pro- that's the the responsibility of the public purse at all. I mean, if they believe in laissez-faire market forces, well... Let's believe in laissez-faire market forces. Uh, well, you've got to always temper these policies with mercy, Kevin. Yes. And small, small business always needs plenty of mercy, you know that. <laughs> the quality of mercy strains the public purse by the sound. Oh, um, but anyway. Oh, dear. Uh, yeah, it's a funny old world. And, and now they're, um, well, they're actually, the front page, the opening par on the front page of yesterday's Fin Review 
P1 story. Peak business groups have demanded, demanded is the word, the government used the economic downturn being caused by the coronavirus outbreak to unveil a significant investment incentive in the May budget. So they, they want to invest, but they want the government to put up the money with the yeah. Senate, which is all very good. Um, but it's just ongoing, well, isn't in, it? Well, in uh, their defence, it does seem that the poor old Reserve Bank's done all it can, hacking yes. interest rates back to virtually zero. That's right. And um, everybody, uh, it, I think everybody else except the government is screaming that the government's got to do something on the is it fiscal side? I don't know. Where, where, anyhow, actually spend yeah. money. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. That's right. And admit they're not going to get their budget surplus, which they're so keen well, on. Well, yeah, the bushfires yeah. made an end of that, didn't they? Yeah, yes. yeah. But they, they, I think they've been holding out a small hope. Even last night on the interview on seven thirty, um, Morrison was still. Not not quite acknowledging mm. that all that was a cost of not doing something about climate change. He, he wouldn't he wouldn't quite come to that. Oh, of course not. No, no, no. Yeah. Anyway, no, okay. apparently Lee Sales gave him a bit of a a bit of a. Yeah, a bit of a going over, she did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Good. yeah. yeah. I, I rarely watched that show, but yeah. I just happened to turn it yeah. on last night and flicking through. I think and he, it was on. So he I got a bit. He got a bit yeah. miffed. Yeah, yeah, Lo- we did. Lovely, smiley Mr. Morrison got a little, yeah, a little yeah. bit irritated. That's yeah, sorry, good. sorry to see, poor old yeah, Scott. Yeah. yeah, good bloke. He did a great job as minister for concentration camps. Where he's a wire and sink the boats. <laughs> we tend he? to forget that. Yeah, he was he, he one of the, the worst of them. He set the tone for nasty. But yeah, for Dutton, Dutton's, Dutton's yeah. carried on, but yeah, um, yeah, Morrison was pretty nasty too. Mm. Yeah, well, they all just as nasty. There hasn't been a non-nasty one I can think of, mm. um, and also. Victorian taxpayers will pay $200 million to a privately owned paper mill to try to shield workers from a state ban on native forest logging. The secret deal between the Andrews government and Australian Paper in Maryvale, owned by Japanese company Nippon Paper, has been struck to secure, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the company, Australian Paper, said it supports the Victorian government commitment. Well, I bet it does, they're giving them a little money. Regarding the long-term transition of our operations to plantation-based supply, we appreciate this process will take time and remain open to working with government, a spokesman said. Well, that working with government means putting your hand out and taking the money. Mm, um, open pocket. Now, yeah. some people can be quite unreasonable, though. Um, <laughs> Tim Pallas, the treasurer, said he, he, um, he, he's helping the 30-year transition. But listen to this for being totally unreasonable. My environment spokeswoman Sarah Rees backed a ship to plantations but questioned never-ending public subsidies. Taxpayers subsidised the logging. Now we subsidise the company to buy the subsidised logs, she said. <laughs> if the government is going to hand this much public money to a foreign-owned bill, we should get our forests back in the hand, back in the handshake. And um, it's interesting. We raised that when the government yeah. introduced the fact that it was going to finish logging by... Um, 2030, mm. you know, we're saying, well, at that stage you gave them an extra 11 years to tear down the forests, and mm. they were still complaining that wasn't long enough. Mm. Um, but at that time, the, the pointed out the reason why they gave them till 2030 was because there's in fact a contract with this company, this logging, this paper company we're talking about, right. till 2030 to be able to use native forests. And so it's really fulfilling the contract that the government, some, I don't know which government it was, mm, has mm. signed some time ago with that mob to work till 2030. Mm, um, mm, but mm. surely they, they should just say, well, bad luck, we'll tear it up or something because you're tearing up the forest. Mm, yeah. mm, Especially yeah. sad for you know, those beautiful old trees to be turned into 
just pulped yeah. into paper. Yeah. In, the, in the Tarkine in, in Tasmania, that's just turning into chipboard. Like it's, it's yeah. Yeah. they're not even building anything or it's just... No, nothing. No. Not, not being used for anything. And the Tasmanian government's easing all the restrictions of the moment. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 No, well, it's... So, uh, you do wonder whether it would just be um, a lot cheaper just to pay pay all the workers a decent wage and just say, you know, here's, here's your, yeah. you know, 50000 a year and whatever. Well, for all those industries, coal and logging and things, you've got to have mm. a transition program, but you don't, you know, mm. it has to be a proper transition program, not just hand the company all this bloody mm. money. Mm. And, in fact, the company should be funding the transition because they've made millions out mm. of the workers mm. over years of logging and taking the coal. Well, of course... There's all these leftover coal mines all over the country and other mines too. And um, often the agreements were signed, you know, 30 years ago that the company will repair the damage after mm. they finished mining. And yeah. in so many occasions, it doesn't happen. No, no, no. no. That's, that's another ongoing problem. Mm. The, the, the rehabilitation of the mines is just, uh, yeah, just left, yeah. to the, left to the yeah. public purse. Yeah. Yep, and just before we go back to the transport, John. Wow, uh, transport. That's right. <laughs> the, I just, just get there, Ken. It's only worth. It's just worth reading the headline um, again in the Financial Review on uh, whatever day it was last Thursday. Rio to spend one billion dollars on climate. That's U.S. dollars. Right. And I thought, well, may they well because they've spent and made a hell of a lot more out of the climate um, for years and years damaging it much more than a billion dollars US in the damage they've done and what they've taken out of it well, in I'd terms wanna, of profit. So, I'd want to see some detail yeah. too about what they call climate spending too. I'm afraid I'm yes. a bit... A Forgive my it. cynicism. A lot of these companies, BHP and this lot, Rio, etc., they're currently talking about zero mm. fifty stuff. Yeah. yeah. But they're talking about ops, offsets, of course, so that means you know you you still you still bloody buy up b- your credits somewhere, mine else, coal. Yeah. You're still bloody yeah, yeah do yeah, this and do that, yeah. but you plant a tree in Indonesia yeah, or something. Yeah, that's and right. Another, one interesting thing that's happening though is lots of mining projects, and some of, some owned by the big guys, that are a bit remote are um, are deciding that it's much cheaper to to generate their power electricity locally from panels, from solar mm. panels and, yeah. and turbines yeah. and have put in big batteries and that that will be, will be cheaper. It won't only be better for the environment, it'll be much cheaper than hauling in the diesel fuel, which they've often got to haul, you know, uh, 500 kilometres and things like that mm. to their mine site. So they're suddenly discovering that it's worthwhile going green. <laughs> but I wish somebody would tell Angus Taylor the same thing. <laughs> Because Angus yeah. is uh, turning out to be a bit of a roadblock. Yes, I think there's some hedge you can't get anything through. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sure you'll talk about it next week on energy. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. We yeah. will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Look, let's take a break. We'll come back and we'll actually talk. Wait for it, John. Transport. Transport. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mawbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. 
Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 Underneath the ground at the Olympic Dam Mine, there is an old sleepy lizard. BHP is mining right into that lizard named Kulta, and it's not so sleepy anymore. The old fucking lizard, I really know. The mining company's gotta go. The lizard returns protestable 2020. Uncle Kev is putting out the call. This is an invitation to all people and protectors of the land and waters to get involved in the creation of Autonomous Zone as we move for peace and justice. BYO, your own creative response to the nuclear industry and BHP's water theft. Keep an eye on the Lizard Revenge page on Facebook or check out our website for history and info and updates on the lizardbitesback.net. The Lizard Returns Protestable, the 3rd to the 6th of July, Arabana Country. See you there. A 3CR supporter. Okay, back on air, and it's this transport day. John, and yeah. I guess this month... Um, Got a theme, Kev? Well, there's lots of them this month, but I guess the one we really have to talk about, and the most serious one, was the accident mm. in which two workers died. Um, yeah. driver and the pilot. And the pilot was there because of the, the f- danger of that part that's of the track. Right. So yes, that's yes, the, the, the signalling had failed on that mm. section, and that meant that the, you know, they put an extra person in the cab who was to guide the driver through that section where the signals were what they call dark and they weren't operating yeah just just on that uh, mm. uh, as, a, as an aside in a sense but remember last month i said i'd just been up to bendigo on a saturday mm. and we got held up for an hour because of well we were an hour mm. late getting in because mm. of um again a signal failure mm. so mm. does this indicate they're not maintaining things very well it could well be kevin could well be yeah because the signaling and certainly on the bendigo line is only about a decade old so you have trouble thinking that it, it shouldn't be breaking down. Mm. It really shouldn't. Um, and um, uh, the fact that things take so long to keep moving again when things do break down does does concern me too because that seems to indicate whatever s- systems they've got in place to you know cope with in times when the signalling fails aren't very good mm. and it takes that long to... And this section we're talking about here, though, but, yeah, let's move back to it, the it's, Wallen. It's the Australian the Rail Track Corporation. Yes, it's a standard right. gauge line yeah, that yeah. goes um, from Melbourne up to um, up to Albury and then on to Sydney, and it's part of the ARTC's national national network and it's standard gauge, whereas most of the lines is still that passenger trains run on in Victoria are broad gauge, like mm. the Bendigo line, yeah. So while we've got no time, no particular mm. um, time for the Andrews government, uh, a lot of the typical Herald Sun readers have been sending in letters attacking them over it. I mean, mm. they can't, you can't blame the state government for this one, can you? Not, not particularly, no. No, the, the, um, the whole... The North East line was sort of rebuilt. Getting on for 10 years ago now, too... 
And the idea was, and it was a good idea, that the whole line would become, well, no, it's, it, it's complicated. <laughs> North of Seymour it would, to Aubrey it would become double track standard gauge, whereas previously north of Seymour towards Albury, one track was broad gauge and the other track was standard gauge. And if you, the trains just ran on either one of those lines and they were passing loops. But to improve the track when they um, got taken over by the ARTC, the Australian Rail Track Corporation, the tracks were both converted to standard gauge, upgraded at the same time. And that, in theory, made a much better track with much greater capacity and should run better. But the the whole project was mismanaged in that the quality of the work done to the track was inferior. And the track, soon after the conversion finished, started to get very rough. And um, trains started to bounce up and down all the way from Seymour to, to Albury. And to the extent that... Um, that passengers became frightened on the, on the trains because the ride was so rough. Mm. And there were some trains that even the wagons uncoupled from each other because of the, the violent movement between the, between the, the carriages. Mm. So they had to bring in an amount of emergency works to, to try and improve things, to get them back to a, a, you know, even just a passable level. And that's been go- really been going on for about the last six or eight years now. And they are still, still um, trying to get it back to a decent, decent level, and so that was going on in general, over over the whole line, and at, the, at Wallen in particular. Now Wallen's actually south of Seymour, and that's on a section where the broad gauge track and the standard gauge track are still isolated and run, run as separate tracks, and the and the st- standard gauge track is single track with passing loops still. South of, south of Seymour. Yeah. Oh, sorry. This is, it is hard to explain. But and at Wallen, the train actually came off the tracks at the beginning of a passing loop where there's a set of points of turnout, and the the um, <clears throat> it appears that the train was going to be shunted onto the passing loop track um, because work was going on in the area to again to improve the track. And that the train probably this is all none of this has been confirmed officially arrived at the turnout where it turned onto the loop track going faster than it should have been, and that's the reason why it, it derailed at this set of mm. set of points. At and the, the pilot was there to try to stop that, but obviously mm. there was a communication breakdown somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, there obviously was a communication breakdown, and and again it's speculation, but it could could be that the that the um, speed limit to um, the put on the track and the decision to divert the trains into the loop was made after the train was on the track coming south from Albury or somewhere and that the crew, the driver and the pilot, didn't get the information. I'm not sure about that either. This is mm. all very speculative. This will all come out, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it it could well be that they that the, the, that the pilot didn't, didn't have the information and should have had the information. Mm-hmm. This really was, you know, this is really what the pilot was about, having the information that things things can change at short notice because of this work going on on the track, that they came came to the, to the divergence where the loop was and found themselves going too fast and 
that's quite likely the reason why the train then derailed on the, on the um, on the turnout, and um, the the locomotive then um, buried itself in the ground, I think, mm. and rolled over, and uh, that was um, that was enough to kill the crew in the cab. Fortunately, none of the 150 passengers were killed. That were they were in, apparently um, about 11 people went to hospital. But um, there was an air ambulance there, but they didn't use the air ambulance, so that indicates that nobody was critically ill, mm. I would think, in the, in the train. Yeah, um, and you say the way the train finished up mm. um, and the small, the relatively light number of injuries to passengers would yep. indicate it isn't, it wasn't going as fast as a lot of the press is speculating. Yeah, that's my that's my feeling. Yeah, yeah, that that the train didn't end up sort of spread all over the over the countryside, as it were. The carriages still remained hitched up and none of the carriages concertinaed, which meant none of them got shrank in length because they are very, very, very strong stainless steel cars. If you're going to have a railway crash, that they're the ones to be in. Uh, mm-hmm. And most, that, yeah. most modern, most modern um, um, railway cars are, are built like that. So, yeah, so you just had this shocking... Business where the two crew members are killed in the in the mm. power car at the front, and um, everybody else looks like survived. Reason- and reasonably. you told me yesterday you also mm. think if they'd been wearing seat belts, yes, they they may may not have died. I think so. I think I think the case for the um, the crew in the power car wearing seat belts is pretty strong. Yeah, not not ne- not necessarily for passengers on the train, but but, but particularly in the power car because they. There, they can be thrown into a very hard dashboard and, and windscreen that mm. uh, you know are ahead of them, mm. and the the seats they sit in are a bit like the seats pilots pilots have in the front of aircraft, um, and um, it, it'd be possible to have a a lap sash harness, the kind of thing you wear in a car, and you know you still get up and move around if you have to, but um, wear the seatbelt while you're sitting down, which you are most of the time. Mm. That would seem to me to be a sensible, a sensible thing, uh, and you know we can obviously see what can happen in this crash. Yeah, mm. uh, in, two people died, so you can't say there's a positive no. in a sense. But no. but um, the fact that it made such news—it was page after yeah, page in yeah. the tabloid media. Yeah. It was on all the news service. Went yeah. on for ages, still going on to some degree. Yeah. Would indicate that it's a very rare thing for people mm. to be killed in public transport. Mm. Uh, you know, if mm. two people had died on the roads, it would have been a paragraph at the bottom of page mm. twenty mm. somewhere. Mm. Mm. Um, so, in in that sense, it it shows that this is a rare occurrence, mm. and mm. public transport generally is pretty mm. safe. Mm. Yeah, it was. It, I was surprised at the degree to which the um, the popular press seemed to think it was worth page after page of, of information because in, in, in a way, as I've just indicated, a lot of it's speculation about what, what really happened. Mm. There, are, there is um, a black box similar to what's in aircraft that's got, that they can download information to actually establish what speeds the train was doing and, and whether the brakes went on and things like that. So they will be able to work a lot of that, that out. Um, even though the crew, of course, as we said, they're dead. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, it's it does indicate p- travelling by train is probably the the, um, the safest way to travel. Um, in- interestingly, aircraft f- flying is actually safer. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> which always right. seems slightly uh, oh, slightly yeah. odd, but but it is, and I think that's based on a per per kilometre distance. You know, if you add a if you divide the number of people killed by the kilometres covered, aircraft are, are safer than trains, but trains are very safe. Yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd rather, but never mind. No, <laughs> <laughs> but remember, okay. we did have that very bad crash at Kerrang. Yeah. Um, in northern Victoria when I when I semi trailer pulled it, yeah. pulled in front of a, mm. no, I drove into the side of the train. Yes. And um that killed eleven eleven people about was that mm. about fifteen years ago? Yeah, about that. But yeah. it was that was also though caused not by the train of course, but by Well it was yeah, by a road and the, there's a lot of there's been a lot of action from state governments since then to try and improve level crossings. Mm. Uh, and that's that's certainly a good thing because level crossings are the most vulnerable point on the whole rail, the rail system yeah, for accidents. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, but no. Well, this this happened at a at a turnout, you know, where the passing loop started, and interestingly, the part at that point, the actual turnout itself had old-fashioned wooden sleepers, and still underneath that, whereas all around it were concrete sleepers. Now that meant that the turnout was a weak point. In the track, which which meant that it may may have been they might say it's a factor that made it made it easy for the for the train to derail. So even if the train was going faster than it should have gone, it takes a fair bit of extra speed to derail a, derail the train. But mm. it would have been easier for it to derail because the timber sleepers wouldn't have held the track yeah. together as well as they. And it was concrete. making a sudden turn. It wasn't. It wasn't prepared for. Correct. Uh, mm. that, that can come into. Yeah. Oh, that comes into. Yeah. It. Oh, that's yeah. that's that's the issue because yeah. it's it's being jerked around into a tight turn at mm. high, high speeds. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Is that uh, area of track reopened now? Are they, are they using yes. It? They they took, I must say, six about six days to reopen it, which was a long time. Um, in the olden days, when trains were really important to the economy. They would have got it opened in some form in 24 hours, mm. um, but now it's it was done very very carefully and uh, took a long time. Yeah, there were there were cases of trains from Sydney to Melbourne. This is freight trains being diverted. Would you believe they had to go via Broken Hill and Adelaide, wow. and come back come back from Adelaide to Melbourne to to arrive? So that would have added 24 hours to the trip easily. But that was um, that was what had to happen uh, for that for that period. So there would have been quite a lot of goods diverted from trains back onto road during that period as well, mm. which is never a good thing. Um, uh, and there would have been a lot of stuff transshipped, you know, around it by road. But there wasn't another convenient standard gauge line to divert things to. Um, and that's the way it is in Australia. Mm. Mm. The network's yeah. pretty limited, yeah. So I guess inquiries will come up with some sort of solutions. Yeah, sure. it'll take time. They're saying there'll be a preliminary statement of facts or something will come out in about a month. Um, and that'll mm. from, there's an agency that deals with transport um, crashes and things, not only rail, deals with um, air, air and shipping and I think, not sure about road, maybe possibly some big road crashes would be, Considered to yeah. 
Yeah, all right. The the airport row, we've talked about mm, it many times, but there's currently it's in the news because <coughs> they've got the mayors of Geelong and Wyndham carrying on. They, mm. There's a whole group of people want more tunnels. Mm-hmm. There's suggestions that if they put it through the metro, it's going to slow down. And, uh, and of course, big business wants direct, fastest route possible, and regardless of what people have to pay to get there, mm. of course. But, so there's still a lot, lot going on around it. It sure is. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. Well, well, it's been very interesting that the um, the the mayors have got 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 concerned because they're quite right. If the um, if if there isn't enough capacity for trains to run fast from from Southern Cross out to Sunshine, uh, the, the, there's no way to get fast trains to the airport or or faster trains to Geelong and Ballarat and Bendigo as well. Mm. And if it's all tried to be done with the current Current tracks, oh, excuse me, they'll definitely get quite con- congested yeah. in pickup. Well, they're saying they they want to, along with this, they want to have better services on those regional lines. Mm. No, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. And but interestingly, um, what does better services mean? I mean, in pickup, the frequency of trains is pretty high on those lines. Um, if you were to continue running something like the pickup services all day, you'd be getting pretty good services. And see, so the mm. Geelong line is now getting a train during the day, Monday to Friday, every 20 minutes during the day. That's very frequent. Yeah. But, but they're not fast. We get that in the upfield line as well. Well, you yeah. do, That's Kevin, right. and you're very grateful. <laughs> <aren't> <laughs> yeah, <right>? we are. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't rip it to I can up. see Kevin, Kevin started gritting his teeth, folks, at that moment. <laughs> um, but the... Um, the the, the the frequency I don't think is the issue, but they, I think the part of the problem I think we have here in Victoria in our thinking is that we're not thinking about running bigger trains with more capacity rather than more small trains. And so every time they think about more capacity per hour, they think, oh, we've got to run even more trains. But but you see, if you, it doesn't matter whether the trains are six cars long or 12 cars long. The issue then is the um, platforms that can handle them, uh, which mm-hmm. they can't at the moment. But it, quite often it's much cheaper to start running the same number of bigger trains rather than run, running more smaller trains. So at the moment about six cars is about the maximum that the trains are run, and that's yep. with the uh, velocity rail cars. But um, there are plenty of places in the world where 12-car um, commuter trains are the norm, not, not six-car. Places like Canada, you know, places in mm. Europe, you know, it's not quite, quite normal, and we we seem to me to be stuck in this small train policy, which is uh, maybe getting one of the reasons why getting more capacity seems so expensive. Well, there's also an argument the government's saying they might run it through the metro, mm. um, but people are saying, well, that means the other trains in the metro will be slowed down, mm. and it won't it won't create the benefits they say it will. Um, is that a valid argument? Well, it could be, but, but you, you've got to see how well these things are run. The Metro is going to have a, a, an upgrade, much, much upgraded signalling system, which is meant to mean they can run trains more frequently, closer together, through the tunnel, and that everything will stay, stay, stay on time. You know? And that, that would mean they should be able to run Oh, I don't know, 24 trains an hour through the metro tunnels each way. And that's a train of about every two and a half minutes. Um, some of the better better metros overseas managed to run a train every two minutes through their metro tunnels on the same track following mm. each other. Um, 
but uh, whether whether that'd be possible with the with a combination of commuter trains and and uh, suburban trains, I'm not sure. Certainly, the ideal would be another tunnel, a tunnel uh, from Southern Cross out to say somewhere in the Tottenham Railway Yard that gets under the difficult part going under Footscray and under the river and comes up in the Tottenham Yard and then goes on from there to Sunshine. But you see, you really need to have planned all this stuff over the last decades. You know, you should have, and they do to some degree have a plan that they then modified to make cheaper when they, when they built the regional line thing and speeded up the trains to... Geelong and Ballarat, they, um, but they didn't do it properly. They had a de- they had a design for for a proper flyover junction at Sunshine, but that wasn't built in the end because they decided this was I think the Liberal government to to take the money out of rail from that that part of the project and put it into roads, so they ended up with an inferior system that's going to be harder to make work properly, and harder to fix fix now because. It's better to do all the disruptive stuff at the same time, or at least do the parts that make the future planning easier or the future building easier. But now they've got to go back and rebuild a whole lot of stuff again. Mm. Um, yeah. It's, well, the government says it's going to announce something shortly, but it's almost like they, with all this going on, they've almost got to go back to the drawing board. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, but they don't. The other peculiar thing is that they don't like admitting that that there's a series of projects in the future they like to present each project as a, a as its own little unit and this is going to be so wonderful you know this is going to be better than sliced bread and this is going to fix everything well of course it's usually the case that you you improve things but not everything gets fixed then there's another stage to do sure. and then another stage mm. and with a city that's growing so fast and we're deliberately growing melbourne at a huge huge rate at the moment you know, they're talking about Melbourne having a population of 8 million. Is it in 20 years' time? Well, yes, they are. And they're, they're also talking about um, the airport's going to you know, expect mm. to have so many more million mm. passengers. Mm. Well, mm. they've got to start thinking about cutting mm. all that back, obviously, at some point. I mean, part of the argument has to be, well, we have to stop flying mm. so much. Mm. We have to stop Well, that's uh, that's right. So we've, got, we've got one layer of planning saying, well, are we going to do anything about all this... All this um, future growth and then you then you think on top of that you think well global warming my god what are we going to do about growth you know people shouldn't be flying so much mm. you know, they should be using trains trains are far more energy efficient than than, than flying yeah, can i throw up to you as well um, um this may be stupid but would it be make sense to for geelong line to go back to the old route through werribee and then for tarnit and windham vale to have a separate designated line of their own well in some ways, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, um, the, um, the, the, the Werribee line and that corridor starts to look underused when you realise that the pressure that's going to be on this new corridor that winds around the back of Werribee mm. through uh, Wyndham Vale and Tarnit before joining the Ballarat line at um, Deer Park. Yeah, um, there's plenty of space to put extra tracks along the Werribee corridor until you get as far as Newport. It gets a bit tight from Newport, yeah, yeah. but but even so, you've got to start asking the question. Well, perhaps Werribee, you know, at least some of the Werribee um, services should be going via um, back by. Sorry, I mean Geelong, Geelong services yeah. should be going back by 
via Werribee um, just to make better use of that line. And, and really, um, I think still it's the case, and this was the plan back 10 years ago, that the Werribee line would continue around the back to join to Wyndham Vale and Tarnit, and those, those trains would actually leave from those stations and come round to Werribee and then come in along the Werribee line rather than head where they do now on the double track line that also carries all the Geelong trains going north to, um, to Deer Park and then in, then in that way, which means you've got this, you know, this is one of the things that the Geelong and Ballarat um, mayors are complaining about, that their regional services are getting caught up with, uh, you know, busy um, suburban lines and that there's not enough space on the one set of tracks to, to cater for all those trains in peak hour. It's not so bad in off-peak, but in the peak yeah. hour, every, they're trying to run lots of trains, and that gets back to my point that should we consider running few, no, no more but bigger trains rather than running more trains? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you, 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 there's, lots, there's lots of questions, and the mayor's have, you know, got a very good point that... that if they, if the government's been promising very fast services, which they have been now for about a decade, um, it's hard to make them run well on the same tracks as suburban lines, suburban trains. If if they're all busy, they're both busy services. With, you know, carrying the peak hour loads, which mm. of course they should be carrying rather than putting them on the motorways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a separate story actually. Um, this week that that a lot of people are going back to their cars because of the coronavirus. They're afraid of travelling mm. on public transport, mm. which is uh, pretty well, awful. Well, can, you can sort of understand it because, you know, we're t- talking about crowded conditions. Well, you know, there's nothing much mm. more crowded than a... Pick our train. Pick our train. No, our tram this tram, mo- yeah. My tram this morning was incredibly crowded. I mean, yeah, anyway, yeah. Once you got this... I was Nicholson Street tram. Once you got this side of... Um, Johnson Street or even mm. Alexandra Parade, we there were people at each stop being left behind. You know, yeah, there were yeah. some squeezing on, but lot just yeah. gave up. Well, that's that's one, and of that's the, just, that's a five or ten minute, six minute service. Mm, it's pretty frequent. That's that, that's yeah. one of the busiest, most popular routes yeah. in, in the in the in the city. I think it might be the busiest. And it's one, yeah. and one just in part, another item, of course, in mm. the last few days. It's one where we, as a council, I use that really collectively, sure. uh, put those barriers in that keep mm. cars away from trams mm. on Nicholson Street. Mm. Um, mm. And um, that was many years ago now, mm. but they're now talking about doing that in a mm. lot more places this week. Mm. So that that's a bit of a breakthrough. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's um, at least, especially in the inner city, it's got to you know the issue's got to be confronted. But sorry, guys. Yeah. If you're in a car, you're you're really second, you're second or third on the list after, uh, well, perhaps fourth, after public transport users, bike riders, bike riders and, and pedestrians. pedestrians. <laughs> pedestrians. Uh, and yeah. you know, really, that's the way you should be getting around in inner city, not not expecting you can drive your car anywhere. Yeah, but there'll be a loud scream from the motor lobby. Oh, yeah, years, well, as I've said many times when I was on that authority years ago. Yeah. When those yellow lines went in, sure. the so-called fairway, yes. which are still supposed to separate cars yeah. from trams, and the, car, and the police but, aren't remotely interested well, in policing. Every them, month, no. I'd say, when are we going to start policing mm. it? And the, the barriers, the unfortunately, the, the group that stopped it was the Transport Workers mm. Union, mm. complaining mm. about their members being affected. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, that's going to be a um, that's going to be an on, ongoing issue. But I think it's got to, it's got to happen. 
the number of crashes where cars are turning across in front of trams is just ridiculous. Mm. Well, the figures are given, and I can't I haven't got, yeah. got the out so, of I mean, it, yeah. I mean, I think people more and more are so in a little capsule in the car, you know, just uh, focusing on their, mm. uh, their audios. And their... Speaking of bicycles, they're talking about new bike parts as well, mm. but just there was an item on this morning's Brecky show here on 3CR yeah. um, in Geelong. And did you hear it? that They've put in, I've spent a hell of a lot of money on, mm. on new bike paths in the city, new bike paths which slow down traffic. But the traffic is so complaining, they're now considering spending the same amount of money to take them out again. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's, just, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? Geelong's oh a funny place. Uh, they, they, they have great difficulty even, even putting public transport in their main shopping area. There's there's always pressure that those wretched bus services should be you know put mm. somewhere out the back you know <laughs> because they're taking away cars park car park parking spaces. Well, I mean Geelong, how many hundred thousand people? Geelong got oh, it. at least I'm not three, sure, three hundred thousand. It's, it's, it's a very big, big city, place, yeah. yeah. And then the bus service and they at the behave, stations they behave good. like yeah. some little country town. Yeah, yeah. the, the yeah. service to the station is very good. <clears> the buses, I mean. I, the I buses used. To, use the, I used to coming back from the coast the yeah. other day and got the bus into Geelong and the yep. train and was yep. during the middle of the day. It was everything went smooth. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. been um, that's that's been well set up, um, but but um, getting into the actual CBD core can be less can be less uh, less enjoyable on a bus. Yeah, and the bus yeah. the standard of the bus services is pretty awful in terms of frequency and coverage and things like that. They it should be a whole lot better, but mm. I don't think the council. Shows very much interest at all. No, no right. right. Took care of that. Look, what we haven't got into, we're out of time, but next mm. month we might spend more time. There was an article in the conversation that was, that was repeated in The Age last week um, about the, the tunnel, the West, Westgate Tunnel, yeah. and the fact that it was a it was a, a, a proposal coming from Transurban themselves mm. for which they got billions put to the end of it, or the thing. But it also makes the point we've made many times that, that this means these companies are, are developing policy on transport rather than us. Correct. And the article argues, in fact, um, it concludes by saying, instead of outsourcing transport problems to private companies, the government should develop a statewide, genuinely consultative, evidence-based plan. An integrated transport plan would allow Victorians to see how future me- mega-projects, regardless of who proposes them, might serve everyone's interests. So we might spend a bit of time well, on that next well, month. Well, there we are. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Okay. All right. We're out of time. Yeah. Look, thank Patrick for doing a magnificent job. Yeah, thank cheers, you. Patrick. Thank you for Good letting to have us you in here. and be educated. <laughs> and tell him. To, and um, next week we've got um, we've got energy on it. Mm-hmm. We're talking about, but there's so much happening there as yeah. well. I don't know what we're going to talk to. Yeah, we've we'll got the right. wonderful federal yeah. government. There'll be a program next the week. The federal federal government's stymieing the states on energy big time. They're yeah. Getting yeah. just it's just getting ridiculous. Yes, but mm. the given that all the states uh, are also seem to be concurring on where they want to go it mm. might put more pressure back and anyway, mm. we'll see what happens okay thanks Paul. cheers you've been listening to a 3cr podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3cr in melbourne australia for more information go to all the w's.3cr.org.au